Good morning. I'd invite you to look in your Bibles in whatever version of that you have. First Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to continue, obviously, in that particular series. Uh, my name is David. In case you don't know me, I'm maybe your newest partner here in the church, uh, newest member. I'm not sure if there have been others since me, but probably one of the newest anyway. I also work with Fellowship Pacific, which is our family of churches, and I've spoken here a few times before, so glad to be here with you. So, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 1 to 5. It's a continuation, actually, from last week. So, Kirk was speaking last week. I wasn't here. I did listen to him online. Great sermon, Kirk. Mentioned that to him earlier. And a reminder to you, he was talking about spiritual growth, and he mentioned that it can be painful, and the Thessalonian church had gone through a whole lot of persecution, difficult times. But as the people, that early church became... Um, more concerned with following Jesus, and they began to grow, they had to continue to nurture that growth. And so Kirk talked about that as well, and then mentioned that we need to be sustaining that over the long haul. So we want to continue that. The passage we're actually looking at is attached to that passage, and it's really a continuation of the same idea, but because it's the same idea, I don't just want to repeat what Kirk was saying. We're going to take it a different direction. You'll see that as we go along. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, but I'd like to pick it up in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica, he says, But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you... Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who's our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to sing praise to you. We thank you for the opportunity of gathering around a communion table, something that you instituted, asked us to do to remember your body, your blood, broken for us, shed for us. We thank you for your word that we get to come and read and learn from. And in all of those things, at the center of them is your son. So most of all, we thank you for him and his sacrifice on our behalf. I pray that you would help us today to learn in a deeper way what it means to be a church and even to support one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So most of us have heard at some point the saying, people are the worst. Nod like occasionally you've heard that people are the worst. Okay, some of you maybe have even said people are the worst. I'm almost certain that that's actually true. So here's the question, who's really the worst? So we're going to start with just four, two little multiple choice questions and you're going to have to vote. That will require you to move your hand and actually vote. If you don't vote, you're the worst. That's what I'm saying, okay? But I didn't put that in the list. So here's the first list, okay? First, people who walk extremely slowly on the sidewalk in front of you. 
and really irritate you. The second in this list is people who chew so loudly that you can't focus on anything else. Loud chewers. Third one is people who think the question, any more questions, is actually an invitation to more questions. And fourth is anyone named Lionel. So, okay. So who picks the first one? People walking slowly. Okay, who picks the second one? Chewing loudly. Yeah, that's a big pet peeve of people. Who thinks the asking questions thing? Oh, what do you mean? Oh, come on. Were you for it or against it? Oh, come on. No, I was at a thing last week when I had to answer a bunch of questions. So our family of churches had its big annual gathering, and I had to answer some questions. At the end of it, I said, any more questions? And everybody there knew. I wasn't asking, are there any more questions? I was saying, I'm like, we're done, right? Like, I'm out of here. And some of them kept asking questions. That's why it's in here. So it's personal. Okay, how about Lionel? Nobody's voting for Lionel. We have one vote for Lionel. Two votes. Are there any Lionels in here? Okay, if there are... Oh, good, I don't have to apologize. So, okay, so I think Chewing Loudly won that one. That's the one that we've agreed really bothers people and demonstrates people are the worst. Okay, second list, here we go. Then we're going to face off. It's like our own playoffs of people are the worst. Okay, number one, and also a pet peeve I didn't mention is when young youth pastor guys are doing announcements and get up and steal the stuff they read on your sermon notes. That's also another thing. First, so people who go in the express line at the grocery store when their cart is full. Okay, who's, oh, well, yeah, we'll go through the list first. Good point. Okay, two, people with expensive cars who park across two spaces because they're so important. Yeah, we all hate them. Okay, three, people who kick your seat on an airplane and four two-year-olds, okay? <laughs> okay, so first one, who's voting for people in the express line? Okay, that's bothersome. How about the people with expensive cars? Yeah, we hate them, don't we? <laughs> that's bad in church, I take that back. We don't. How about kicking seats? Hmm, hmm. Okay, we're gonna go back. Expensive cars. Kicking seats. Hmm, I could be a tie. Okay, two-year-olds. <laughs> yes, thank you for telling the truth. God loves you. So, okay, we're back now. We're going to chewing people and people who chew loudly. We're not chewing people. People who chew loudly, okay? And expensive cars, because that's the one that irritates me. So that's the one I go with as the tiebreaker. I got to, so who's saying people who chew loudly? Who's saying people who park across two spots? Yeah, okay, that's the winner. That's why people are the worst. In fact, if you go online, you can find huge lists of people are the worst in specific situations. People are the worst because of this. People are the worst because of that. All that kind of stuff. What's not as fun is when you start looking up those lists online is there are massive numbers of lists of why Christians are the worst. There's a lot of those lists. And they're not particularly polite, and I don't recommend you read them. I didn't. I just saw the header. I wouldn't have clicked on any of them, really. Maybe. Possibly. Sometimes we hear that, don't we? People are the worst, and we think of that in church, and we think that Christian people are the worst. Certainly, that's a pretty common experience that we might hear any day in a work environment, on any sports team, in a large family gathering. And to some degree, I think most of us in church accept some of that. We say, that sounds right. 
Sometimes church people are the worst. And that leads us to sayings like, or church would be great if it wasn't for, finish the saying. The people. Yeah, you guys are like flat here. We're going to try, okay? People, no, church would be great if it wasn't for the, the people. Or, I love God, but I can't stand the church, actually. Okay, that was tricky, apparently. Trickier than I thought it was. And I want to acknowledge that I could spend our time here today easily telling you the woes of a church, because that's kind of what I do for a living. So with our family of churches, I deal with uh, crises in churches on a regular basis. So at any given week, any given day, there'll be one or two churches in crisis, and it's my job to try and help them through that. And more often than not, a crisis in a church is a person issue, a people issue. That's how those crises occur. And there's all kinds of weird stuff that comes. Let me give you uh, one older illustration for it. So a number of years ago, like 10 years ago, I was driving somewhere. Where should we call it? We'll just call it somewhere. I was driving somewhere. It was very snowy, lots and lots of snow, and I was going to speak in this very small church, and I decided to take my son with me on this experience, because it would be good for him to go into small church and see what that's all like. And got there, and it turned out that I was, we were like an hour before the service, but nobody had gone into their little building at all. And so there was big snow drifts out in front. Nobody had plowed anything or shoveled the walk or anything. And in fact, nobody ever did. So when they got there in time for the service, which was at 11, they came about 5 to 11, they just waded through the snow. So kind of like <laughs> through the snow. And then this very old and lovely couple came up and they were wearing, he was wearing a three-piece suit. Turned out he was leading the music. And so he got up and went into the front of the church to lead the service, which was beginning like in two minutes. And it was cold in that church because they didn't use the heat because they saved money. So my son, who at the time was mid-teens, was a little traumatized by this very cold experience and a bit nervous over the fact that there was really only like 20 people in the entire thing and it felt weird and odd to him. And so the guy that was leading the singing started leading the singing and his wife was playing an organ and they sang some hymns that were old, like old enough that I've never heard of them. And when they started singing them, that was fine. He was doing the normal old school church thing with the hand motions going. My son, who was nervous, started to get kind of shaky, like he wanted to laugh because it, one, it was really cold in there. That made him kind of shaky. And two, he was nervous about the whole thing and felt like this is particularly strange. So then the old guy started, when they got the name Jesus appeared in any of the hymns, he crossed himself. So it was like... But he got shaky because it was too cold, so they brought up a parabolic heater. And he'll be here in the second service. You could actually check with him whether I'm making this up. They brought up a parabolic heater to heat him up while he was leading the singing because he was getting too cold. But it had that hum that sometimes happens when it's slightly off. So it was like, and would start doing that. And so he's up there doing this, crossing himself, and they kick. So, kick. And the whole thing was weird, and my son started to kind of laugh, and I'm like, don't laugh, don't, don't do it, don't do it, because if you do, I'll do it, and we're lost, and we're going to get kicked out of this little church, it'll be a horrible lifetime experience. Anyway, so we <laughs> kept on going, and they had like a prayer time thing, and the guy who was leading the prayer got up there, and he started saying, you know, things that we want to pray for, and the lady behind us said, I'd like to pray for Debbie's cat. Debbie's cat got hurt, the paw got hurt. Yesterday, could we pray for Debbie's cat? So the guy who was leading the praying broke down and started to cry, saying, yes, yes, let's pray for all of God's furry little creatures, and started to pray for the little cat with the little paw, and the woman behind us started to cry, overcome with emotion over Debbie's cat, and she ran out the door, and my son was, 
<laughs> like, don't, and I'm, don't laugh, don't laugh. I had his knee. Like, don't, 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 don't laugh. It's because we're in trouble if we do. So I got up to speak. And the second I got up to speak, somebody stood up at the back, and there was only 20 or so, so the back wasn't very far away, and started swearing at me. And when I mean swearing, I don't mean like lightly swearing. I mean like every second word was particularly foul, and screaming at me, like, you don't care about us, you don't care about the word of God, you don't care. it's like, uh, we've never met, right? And the people that were sitting there were staring out the window, and I'm like, little help here? Like, is this normal? Is this what happens every Sunday for you? And the guy just kept swearing at me. Eventually, we made a deal that, you know, I'll talk to you after the service if you let me finish the sermon first, because you don't know if you hate me yet, really. We've never met. So it'd be good if you gave me a chance to earn some hatred. That would be excellent. So we kept going till after the service, and then he came up and continued to swear at me, and my son stood or sat in the, like, second or third row from there, and he just stared, like, that this awesome experience of this guy screaming and swearing at me following the service, followed by another couple who came up and asked why I couldn't just replace their pastor with the person who was praying for all the furry little creatures. And it was just an odd, stressful kind of a thing. And so we left, and we're driving home, and my son, who usually has something to say, said very little, until we started driving along about 20 minutes in. He says to me, Dad... I'm trying to think of this as a bonding experience. <laughs> and then he said nothing for about 10 more minutes, and then he said, Dad, can we agree that today never happened? <laughs> Which was unfortunate. Overall, we stopped at an A&W, and I dropped the two frosty mugs that slipped off because that was bad, and they hit the ground, smashed, and covered everybody with root beer. He didn't even move. He, didn't, he was sitting down. He just looked at me. Like I said, today never happened. <laughs> Okay, that happens. So I could regale you with joyous church stories like that all day long, but that would miss the point. Because here's the actual point. The point is that regardless of that stuff being true, people in churches are not the worst. They are not the worst. In fact, quite the opposite. They make churches great. Now, to be more specific, it's what God is doing in the people that makes churches great. But the people themselves, the people that make a church, care deeply about Christ, care deeply about people, and want to see the very best for them. Because the Christian life is not a solitary exercise. It isn't meant to be played alone. So if you go back to the Thessalonian passage, the Thessalonians are described as a model church. But they didn't become that way on their own. They're the youngest of the churches that Paul writes to. The gospel, we're told in chapter 1, verse 4, had been preached to them in the power of the Spirit, and they had accepted it. They had become imitators of Paul in spite of extreme suffering. And we're told, in fact, in chapter 1, that Paul, in his relationship with them, had been authentic. He had played no tricks on them. No manipulation had occurred. He hadn't been a people pleaser. He focused on what God wanted and the people needed. We're told he wasn't a burden to them. In fact, he went and got a second job to be sure that they didn't have to give him any money because he cared about them. And he cared deeply about them. And because of that, the gospel spread. So they received the gospel. Then they responded to the gospel and they reproduced the gospel and they became known throughout the entire area as people who were a model church who were people that ought to be followed and copied. But Paul, like a parent, didn't stop caring about the Thessalonian church. And when you get to the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, he's concerned for them. And there were circumstances that kept Paul 
from going back to the Thessalonican church. And he couldn't get there like he wanted to. He was worried because they're young. Yeah, they're doing great, but they're young and there's a lot of persecution starting to occur. And he's concerned about what's going to happen to them if nobody is there to support them. But he couldn't get there. We're told that Satan stopped him, so he sends Timothy. And in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, When we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. So Paul stayed in Athens on his own. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, to them. Brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ. Timothy's credentials were pretty good. He was on Paul's team. But I want to remind you that Timothy himself had to be trained, had to grow. He didn't start that way. Timothy was a timid kind of a guy. Paul reminded him throughout the epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy as he's writing, as Timothy's becoming a pastor on his own, not to be timid, not to be intimidated, not to be withdrawn, to fan into flame, he says, the gifts that God has given you. Don't let somebody look down on you because you're young. In fact, go and preach the gospel. Be bold in what you do. Stand for what you believe. Paul had to serve as his spiritual father. Paul had to invest in Timothy. But Timothy's now grown up, now learned something. Paul's sent him in as a surrogate in his own place to the Thessalonian church. He's concerned that they won't make it if they're left on their own. And you might stop and just think about this again. If you go back a little bit further to Acts chapter 9, you have the story of Paul's conversion from Saul to Paul. He encounters the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, he has this great conversion experience. So Paul, who was a strong guy, a smart guy, a very focused guy, still had all this background in Bible as a Pharisee, but he had to be trained by somebody. So along comes a guy by the name of Ananias. Ananias invests in Paul early on in his Christian life. Before Paul ever goes on his first missionary journey, the early church pairs him up with a guy by the name of Barnabas. Barnabas is known as the encourager, enough of an encourager that his name had been changed from Joseph to Barnabas because that's who he was. It was the identity of Barnabas as an encourager. And so they sent Paul with Barnabas on his first missionary journey. We're told that Paul spent a lot of time developing Timothy. And he taught him to follow the pattern that I've shown you and then train that to reliable men. Then Paul began that same process with the Thessalonian church. And he sends Timothy to continue it on when he couldn't be there. We're all in the process of growing. And we need each other to do it. Notice as well in there, if you go through that progression, you have Paul and Ananias and Barnabas and Timothy and the Thessalonians and then people that the Thessalonians are reaching in Thessalonica. There's a whole series of people at different stages in their walk with God. People at different stages of maturity. And when that's true, in any church, in any place, there's pain that comes with it. There's an inevitable pain. If we're involved in our community, that is, churches are on mission doing what God has called them to do, if we're reaching people in the community around us, then we are bringing in hurting people all the time. All the time. And if you mix those new followers of Christ or people even exploring following Christ, you put them in a church, they start to go to things, get involved in things, and you mix them with all the dysfunctions of the people who are already here, and we've got plenty of them, plenty of them. You mix those together, and you end up with a jig, jig, that's a new word, big mess, gigantic mess. We call that people. We're a mess 
They're a mess, look around you. We're all kind of in that mess together. And the only thing worse than having a mess in the church would be having no mess at all. Because that would mean we're not doing the mission at all. The second we pursue the mission that Christ has given us and we reach people and we reproduce, it means we have people in all these various stages of growth with all these background issues coming together, trying to be the body of Christ, living that out in a local community. We've all got issues. So when a church has problems, of course. Of course. When we don't have any issues, that's when we ought to be scared. That's when we ought to be bothered. So there's two specific benefits, and there's a lot more benefits, obviously, but in this particular passage, two specific benefits I want to focus on that we gain from others that you see. First benefit is this, from being in a church with people where people are not the worst. First benefit, people are going to tell us what we need to know, like it or not. People will tell us what we need to know, like it or not. There's a lot of things we need from one another in the church that we need from other people. This is the least fun. This is the one we don't like. This is the one that often creates conflict, creates the problem. But in this particular case for the Thessalonian church, we're told that Paul had continually told them to expect trials and problems, told them it wasn't going to be an easy road. He said it over and over. In verses 2 to 4, describe the trials in two different ways. In verse 2, he says, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. It says they were destined for these trials. It's the kind of issues that Christians are going to deal with. There's the kind of issues that we are all going to deal with if we follow Jesus. So why does Paul say that to this young church that's struggling, that needs encouragement? Because it doesn't mean you did something wrong doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It doesn't mean you have a lack of faith. It merely means that you're in your walk of faith and growing in maturity, and it is inevitable that if we follow Jesus with all of our life sold out to God, that there will be opposition, there will be persecution, there will be difficulties, there will be hard things to do. That's why Paul would say in Philippians 3.10 that when you come, and Paul's desire was to know the power of the resurrection of Christ— which is what we remember in the Lord's table. And then he said, and the fellowship of his suffering. Those go together. He said earlier in Philippians as well, that this is what you should expect. In this passage, he says, you were destined for this. He told them to expect it in verse four. In fact, he uses a term that says, we told you and we told you and we told you and we told you that this is what was going to happen. And that's how it turned out. He also said that these trials would, could be unsettling, and he uses a word to be shaken or disturbed or lured away. In fact, it's a word that used to be used for a dog's tag or tail wagging back and forth, like wag, 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 wag. You can go back and forth, back and forth. When you run through difficult things, you start to doubt, you start to have questions. You're not sure, you are sure, you're not sure, you are sure. And he restates that concern then in verse 5, saying that the tempter was at work. We're told earlier it was Satan who stopped Paul from getting back to Thessalonica to support them. He now says, I'm worried that that same tempter, Satan, is somehow going to lure you away, that the persecution, the opposition that you're facing is going to be a motivator for you to abandon your faith. And so Paul had this huge concern for them. 
So it'd be easy for us at this point to stop and talk about our trials. Kirk did a really good job at that last week. That's not what I want us to look at or focus on out of this right now. I'd like us to focus on the fact that Paul kept warning them. Paul kept telling them something they didn't want to hear, some, an idea they didn't like, that they were going to face these trials. And I'm not suggesting that we should nag each other to death. I'm kind of a fan of 1 Thessalonians 4.11, where it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. So that's a good idea as well. But I want to remind you, Timothy was in the game with them. Timothy was living the Christian life with them. He wasn't a bystander. He wasn't trying to tell them off. He wasn't working out his own insecurities by showing up somebody else. He wasn't being small-minded as a Pharisee. He wasn't embodying some painful, self-righteous Christianity. He wasn't a control freak using spirituality to get his way. Bottom line, Timothy was not acting like a religious bozo and saying, do this, do that, do this, do that, and interfering with people's lives. He was trying to tell them what they needed to hear. And as we grow, as we grow as believers, as we nurture ourselves, as Kirk talked about last week, as we try to do that within the body of Christ, which is the community of Christ, we need some authentic Christianity and authentic relationships in which we tell each other the truth. Because we care about each other. Where we tell each other things that we don't always want to hear, because when that's done with a right heart, it is a huge, huge gift. A massive gift. Because sometimes the tempter is trying to lead us astray and somebody needs to have the courage to speak up before we destroy the very things we say we value. Sometimes being forewarned is being forearmed and we're better prepared to face what is coming, which is what Paul is doing in warning them about temptations and persecutions here. Sometimes it's because we've been down the road of discouragement or sin or fear that somebody else is going down, and we know where it leads. We've been there, done that. Sometimes because experience is a great teacher, and it would be really nice if we didn't have to keep making the same mistakes over and over and could actually learn from one another. Wouldn't it be great, 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 if people were willing to help us? if people were willing to tell the truth and to speak into one another's lives, to keep us from hard, hard things. We're not in a world in which that's the favorite thing to do. We're not in an environment in which people say, woo-wee, I'm going to go tell them something they don't want to hear. But it is one of the things that the church can do, that the people in the church can do for one another, that helps one another in huge, huge ways. None of us like it but we sure need it. It's a benefit. Second benefit of people and the church together is not only will they tell us what we need to hear, like it or not, but they're going to be there when we need them. They're there when we need them. And specifically, in this passage, Paul tells Timothy to do two positive things. He says you need to strengthen them and you need to encourage them. I can't get there. I'm sending you, Timothy. Strengthen them encourage them. Strengthen them, the word for that in verse 2 means to solidify their faith. It's the opposite of unsettling their faith. It's earthquake-proofing your faith. It's to stand when the ground shakes. And to encourage is to exhort. It's to comfort and stand with them through the difficulties. And we all need both of those. Strengthening, encouraging. Solidifying and standing with, holding our hand when we need it. 
It isn't just telling somebody hard things. It's then standing with them as they go down that journey. Both of those things together, because trials are certain. They're going to happen. We are destined for them. Growing, spiritually growing as a follower of Christ has challenges. There's pain involved. When we try to change from the inside out, change the people that we are more and more into the likeness of Christ, that means we're going to run into hard things that are difficult to change. Transformation as a requirement of the spiritual life is very, very hard. And it's not just sermon hard. It isn't just things we talk about on Sunday. It's really legitimately soul-level, gut-level, difficult to do on a day-by-day basis, and we need one another if we're ever going to get there. doesn't matter how strong you think you are. You are not strong enough. doesn't matter how strong I think I am. I am not strong enough. We need each other. And we can hear horror stories about bad behavior in the church and people who behave wrongly in a church. So we get sayings like, people are the worst. Church would be great if it wasn't for the people. And sometimes that's true. But here's what's also true. In my 11 years doing this particular job that I'm in right now, which is going from crisis to crisis to crisis, week after week after week, I have more confidence now in the church than I ever did. So people say stuff to me like this. They say, well, your job must be really hard. How do you keep from being cynical? How do you keep from being cynical? Truth is, it's not hard at all. The reason for that is you get to meet the people in the church. And yes, there are some people who do things you wish they wouldn't do, but the vast majority of people in the church are giving everything they've got in every moment of their life to serve God well. The vast majority. And there is an amazing amount of effort that goes into every church from large groups of people to try and care for one another, to try and support one another. And we don't tell anywhere near enough of those good stories. What happens is somebody gets upset with something, you hear them complaining about a bunch of stuff in a church, and it seems like that's what the church is, and we forget the 99.9% of the people who are giving every waking moment of their life fully devoted to God, seeking to follow him, and trying to help one another in the process. We don't hear the stories of sacrifice, of grace, of love, often because people don't want to be noticed, and they're just going to care. We don't celebrate nearly enough the leadership in churches who are praying, struggling, and acting with the best interests of people in mind. I've sat with church board after church board after church board where they sit there and cry over the issues that a particular person is going through, asking, I mean literally crying, asking how do we help them? What does that even look like? Knowing that no matter what they do, somebody's going to write them an email and complain that they did it wrong, could have done it better, And sometimes they could have done it better, that's true. But almost always they are deeply, passionately trying to do their best to honor God and love people. And the more you get into church and get to see behind the front doors of church, the more you will see people giving their lives to supporting, caring, and helping. And there are remarkable stories of individuals and people walking alongside of people when they're needed, where they journey with them through grief, where they support them through issues of marriage, where they sacrificially give to them through hard times. And when those happen, we get to see church at its best. Church at its absolute best. I went to help a church that was in crisis a while back, and they had gone through a difficult period. 
I'm not going to get into it in a lot of detail, but one of the staff members' spouse had made some really bad choices that had led to the woman who was on staff uh, being isolated. She tried really hard to work on their marriage. At the end of a year or so, her spouse decided to divorce her. Really hard for a church. Really hard journey to walk for a church. In the end, we had to have a church meeting. I was there at it where they were trying to talk about why this had happened, what they should do with that kind of thing. And the board of the church stood up and said, okay, we absolutely are not firing this person. We are going to support her, walk with her, be with her. She has sought to honor God all the way through. And we know it will hurt the church. We know it'll hurt the church. We know that going through a divorce will look really bad to people coming in our church. We know that having a person on our staff going through a divorce is going to hurt the ministry and people will leave the church. We will not do it. We stand with her. One of the best church meetings I've ever been in in my life because person after person in the church stood up and asked questions like, how did you support them? How did you love them? Did you send them to counseling? What did you do to try and make their marriage work? What are you doing to help them now? None of it was blame. It was all about loving, supporting, caring. And in the worst moments of church sometimes, in the worst moments of an individual going through a difficult time in their life, and sometimes that's illness, sometimes that's uh, marriage, sometimes that's addiction, sometimes we can go through the long list of things. In those worst moments in the lives of individual people are the best moments of church. But not without pain not without questions, not without second-guessing. And I realize those great moments of church is not everybody's experience. And I realize people get missed and mistakes get made. But I do want to say to you that in my experience of this, it's not by design, it's not by intent. Sometimes we just don't do it well. And the fact remains, we need each other to strengthen, to encourage, to strengthen, to encourage so you get all this talk about today about um, compassion fatigue in the church. And so I just want to remind you, as we look at this passage, that when we calculate the cost of doing church, of being with people in the church, there's a revenue side as well. It's not just cost. Investment in people does have return. First, and obviously the most important, it has a return because we're obedient, being obedient to what Christ has called us to be. So we're told in John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, that people will know who he is and he will receive glory because of our love for one another. And so when we act out that love within the church, we are testifying to a community around us who doesn't know how that marriage could possibly stay together, don't know how you could ever support this person with addiction, don't know how you could ever walk that journey with this person. Every single time we do that, we're saying to the world around us, Jesus lives. Jesus transforms. Jesus does something that nobody else can do. But beyond that, there are few things as deeply satisfying or encouraging as seeing people act in faith and grow in faith. So look at the verse just before this. Kirk alluded to it last week at the end of chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians. These are Paul's words about the Thessalonian church. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Think about this for a second. What is our hope, our joy, 
or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord. So when we die and we're in the presence of Christ himself, Paul says, what will we be glorying in? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So Paul writes that his spiritual resume, his resume before God, his claim to fame when he gets to heaven, will be the Thessalonians. He says that when he crosses the threshold of heaven, he's going to be pointing at them. Now, obviously, he's only there because of the work of Jesus Christ. But Paul does add, oh, but by the way, when I get into that place before God, I'm going to be saying to you, oh, did you consider these guys? They're my resume. They're my joy. They're my crown. This is people that you gave me that rare privilege of being invested in, of involving my life with, and look at what's happened with them. Yes, it's all your work, but I had the privilege. I had a part of that. What an amazing, amazing thing. So if we want to, we can go around in church today, and I hear it all the time, and we can see problems with people because they always exist. They're bound to exist if we do our job. The more we do our job, the more we're on mission, the more messed up we're going to be. That's the great news. Revel in it. And if we listen to the world around us, even if we listen to the church people around us, sometimes we're going to hear ourselves hearing things like, people are the worst. Or, the church would be great if it wasn't for the people. But far more, far more, if we're willing to, we can look at the people around us, and then we can stand before the God who calls us, the Jesus who saves us, the Spirit who transforms us, and we can point at one another and we can say, these are my hope, my joy, my crown. Last week we were told you we had our, our family churches had their annual gathering called Impact, and we hear stories of what God is doing as the church stands together, as the church acts like the church, God's people acting out his mission in our world. Wings, which Lori Wasselu, who's there, leads, building their third set of homes for women fleeing domestic violence, being asked by the Corporation of Delta to run another home for them. Quanos and Sunnybrae camps, record number of kids being reached, lives being changed. Baptist Housing, which is another of our agencies serving loving seniors through housing, spiritual care, the largest faith-based provider for seniors in our province. Refugee housing being done through most churches, a refugee apartment that we purchased together to serve 13 families. The second one that we're looking at it, um, Saanich Baptist in Victoria, building a dream center in the San Quentin Valley in Mexico. Talked to a pastor in Fernie who's in San Salvador, his church, trying to broker deals between Compassion International and Shelter International for housing and care for people. International Justice Mission, fighting sexual slavery around the world. Here at Southridge, you look just on your website, and you're making a difference in Mexico, in Haiti, in Colombia. I was there with Pastor Brent a month ago. Right here in your child care center, your soccer camps, you have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers acting out their faith in the community around you, doing things for Christ. On and on it goes. Look around you. Look around you. Because these are people who have sacrificed, suffered, and paid the price financially, spiritually, and emotionally to be involved. These are people who have traveled their own long journey back from harsh sin. These are people who have faced down despair during illness. They've 
fought to hang on to an authentic faith through the toughest times of their life. They've sought the God of the universe in the darkest moments. These are people who've had their hearts torn apart by caring for the broken, who've shared what they had when it cost them everything to give it, who've risked themselves in outreach. They've spent themselves loving for other people. These are children of grace, heirs of the kingdom, workmanship of the Father, sanctified of the Spirit, followers of Jesus, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, called out of darkness into his wonderful light so that we can declare his praises. That's the person sitting beside you. These are people who have sold out their head, their heart, their life to the reign of God, and I will be proud to stand with them on that day. Proud to stand with them. In fact, on that final day, our resume to the Father will be those people. Our proof of fruitfulness, our hope, our joy, our crown. I'll need you. I'll need you standing beside me on that day before God in heaven. But here's the trick. It's not just the final day that you need them. It's not just on that day. We need them today. We need you today. I need you today. And people are absolutely not the worst. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your church, for the people you bring into it, the people you call into it. I look at them and I look at myself and I wonder why. I think, why this person? Why me? And I know that in no sense, in no way, am I adequate enough to serve you, to be part of your church, to call your son by my name, to even be known by the name of Christian. And yet you've called us together into this big, gigantic mess in which you do the sanctifying, you do the work, you do the transforming, you do the changing, and the beauty belongs solely to you, and the glory belongs solely to you. And fathers, thank you so much that we can do it together. Your church, your body, in your likeness. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.